Hey, everybody, it's another amazing episode of This Week in Startups and the Angel Podcast. So you can search for Angel Podcast as well and find a bunch of religious people uh, talking about God and angels in the world. Or if you type Angel Calacanis, you'll find this podcast. It's season <laughs> six. Uh, and Paige Doherty is an amazing guest. Uh, she uh, runs Behind Genius Ventures. She just graduated two years ago in 2020. So yeah, the world has changed. People are coming out of college and starting their own uh, venture capital funds. She wrote a children's book, Demystifying Venture Capital. I kid you not. Love An it. amazing guest. Love everything about it. But first, we are going to cover the news because news. big day at the stock store. Facebook, oh <clears throat> Meta's stock was down something like 24% at 1.26% after a rough earnings in which they project a $10 billion loss. Jason, by the way, if you are not watching the video, is just covering his eyes from the sheer Ooh. murder. That it's was just committed. hard to watch. I mean, it's, it's just, just watching watch. somebody get just absolutely beat up. Is it though? Is it hard to watch Facebook? No, it's actually quite enjoyable really for me. Know. It's quite delightful. It's just like, yeah. Uh, delightful. And then, then we're going to follow up on our intellectual property conversation about respecting other people's work in the world and art with an absolutely insane NFT project called Hit Piece uh, that is accused and apparently is based on their apology. <laughs> Stealing NFTs based upon Britney Spears or Taylor Swift's music without permission and then selling it. Uh, just more horrible behavior in the IP space. And we're going to teach people in this quick segment how to be decent human beings. <laughs> it is going to be a great and very informative show. Stick with us. Season six of Angel is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Post your first job for free at linkedin.com slash angel. The Embroker Startup Insurance Program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off traditional insurance today at embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code twist. And Our Crowd. Our Crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join Our Crowd for free at ourcrowd.com slash angel. All right, everybody. It is a huge, huge news day because, wow, we, we expected this would happen at some point, but we didn't expect it would happen this dramatically. Sometimes a company faces so many headwinds that you predict, hey, this is not the stock to own. This is not the company to work for. And I've been staying that for about, I don't know, two years now. And mm -hmm. everybody told me I was crazy. Mm -hmm. And I told them, you know, these headwinds and these things pile up and that at some point it hits the bottom line. But there is always a lag. <laughs> and this company, Molly, has had uh, negative PR. Mm -hmm. It has had regulation issues. It has had political Declining issues. Trust from its advertisers because ongoing. Trust with advertisers, yeah. yes. And it has had competitive issues and slowing user growth and the inability to buy its way to success. And that company is? Sadly, that company named itself Meta in <laughs> a kind of embarrassing for all of us attempt to outrun all of those issues. Like, I sort of oh, feel like good point. the moment that you know things have really approached or reached perfect storm status is when you change your name to try to run away from them. So, yes, Meta. Wow. 
or Facebook has dropped over 25%. Oh, I see as of this recording, 26%. Oh uh, my God. Yep. Just keeps going down since reporting earnings yesterday. That was Wednesday. They projected a $10 billion loss of revenue from Apple's privacy features. And for the first time, negative user growth quarter over quarter. The stock dropped from $323 a share to $238 a share as of 1 p.m. Eastern on Thursday. This represents a $220 billion loss in market cap overnight. Gone. I mean, it's it's like, where do you begin? Um, this now, is, I do, I want to begin with a fun fact, actually. This is pretty fun. Okay, the largest single day decline in Wall Street history beating Facebook's $119 billion decline in 2018. Got it. So yep. this is an example of, I think, in a way, a bit of hubris here. Uh, I love your observation, Molly, that why did they change the name of the company and what did that represent? Now, for Zuck, knowing him and how he thinks, he has been obsessed with not being disrupted and being a disruptor. That's why he had the philosophy, move fast and break things and locking people down. They had this concept of a lockdown where they would just, you know, out hustle any other company, stealing other people's innovations. I don't need your unique ideas. I need you to just whatever Evan Spiegel does. And, you know, I was kind of talking about that years ago. I was like, you know, if you're stealing Evan Spiegel's ideas and you're out of your own, that's a really bad sign for your company's prospects. Of course, you could steal your way for a while, uh, but this idea that they would change their name Mm -hmm. to represent a product that loses $10 billion a year, VR, Mm -hmm. that has no value in the real world yet, no revenue to speak of. Um, I mean, they sell some headsets, but let's face it, this is a business, the metaverse, that doesn't exist yet. And And by the way, is also a stolen idea. Also, Neil and yeah, and, Gibson they, and everybody else who invented it literally by that right so it's not even it's not even like the moniker they stole the moniker and frankly the concept from like existing sci-fi there's not even like some kind of vision of it that no even, spin no original spin no original spin and i really do think that from a pr perspective changing your name is usually a sign of desperation i really do like sure it could also be you know in the case of square where they're going with block it's like we're taking the company in a different direction. Right. And and that direction is equally unproven, different conversation here. But like Metaverse is at best a 10-year bet. The headsets mm-hmm. themselves are churning users right now, as you have talked about on the show. And we've talked about I was one of those users who bought one and is just like, this is crickets now. Yeah. But I, d- I don't think we can sleep on a couple of different factors here. One, of course, is that saying we're going to lose $10 billion over... Uh, it, the course of the year, I think, but a ten billion loss, di- billion dollar loss of revenue because of Apple's privacy features. Mm. I want to dig into that a little bit because, on the one hand, hundred percent, Apple came gunning for Facebook with these privacy changes and yeah. a lot of bad behavior across the industry. However, mm. I wonder if blaming Apple isn't mm. also cover the fact that facebook is running into all these other headwinds real hard and that the biggest problem for them is that negative user growth quarter over quarter you know i think they build they built up such bad will and i've been saying this from the beginning since i yep. thought zuckerberg was a bad actor because he kept stealing people's ideas yep um i think that bad karma has built up to the point in which people don't want to work for the company 
Um, the fact that they, you know, all the election malfeasance and all that stuff, it's just all this bad will. Then, you know, subverting the research on women or young women with body issues and eating disorders. It's just like when all of this bad stuff builds and you don't take any responsibility and you steal people's ideas. At, at a certain point, people stop rooting for you and yeah. they want to see your demise. I think that that's part of this. And I think a lot of the people who are owning the shares are like, you know what? I have other places I could put my money and I don't want to believe that they can overcome these problems because there is a chance they could overcome these problems. Mm -hmm. And Apple did the right thing for their users. Apple said, we want to be the privacy company. Mm -hmm. We are not going to let you track. That's well within Apple's right. And of course, that affects Google. Uh, it affects Snapchat, Twitter. It'll affect TikTok uh, when they get their ad business going. Everybody, right? Everybody Anybody. on the platform, right? It has affected the entire digital ad industry. Like every right. article in every digital ad publication right now, TradePub is like, how do you work around this? And I'm sorry to say they're all pivoting to texting. So like lock that mm -hmm. down immediately. Yeah. And listen, it, at some point, somebody had to say, we need to protect the privacy of users and there's overreaching here. And let's yep. give the users some power in this. And, you know, the governments, you know, they're trying and the EU has done some stuff. There's California regulations as a backstop, but that's pretty slow moving. And what you see here is another private company that owns a platform can press a button yeah. and can execute instantly. Yeah. So again, it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal because Apple does make some money through advertising. They have it in their uh, a de minimis amount in their app store and they have the search deal with Google. Mm -hmm. So in fact, I'm guessing long term, Apple's moves here could have costed some money on the margin with that Google deal, because when Google renegotiates that deal, maybe they make less money, yada, yada. But when you have a money printing machine, and this is when you talk about mob behavior, <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> to dovetail another story that's been in the news uh, with people saying, you know, like all's fair and love and business and war and platforms. Uh, this is the, was the ultimate gangster move by Tim Cook. He had had enough of the bad behavior. <laughs> of app developers on their platform that they get blamed for, right? And, yep. he, and he just pushed the button and yep. nuked $10 billion in revenue for Facebook. These days, it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your small business. Don't I know it? That's why LinkedIn Jobs made it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. When you create a free job post on LinkedIn, it takes just minutes to create and reach the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. You can use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified candidates, and you can utilize simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you want to interview and hire. This is why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering qualified hires versus the leading competitors. Don't I know it? I found so many great people on LinkedIn, and it's such a great network and the tools just work effortlessly. So here's your call to action. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the right candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know that every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Well, you can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash angel. Now you need to use that URL, linkedin.com slash A-N-G-E-L. That's linkedin.com slash angel to post your first job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. This is one of the most hardcore hits I've ever seen in business. I'm trying to think the only other thing I can think of is like Microsoft bundling Internet Explorer and, you know, killing Netscape, you know, mm -hmm. so viciously. I mean, it uh, is a murder. It really it's it is bloody. just a, it's really bloody. And it is, you know, 
and I like it. I'm sorry. Well, look, it's good business for Apple. Like at the end of the day, it is. And you are absolutely right to point out that Apple was taking the hit for, you know, I mean, I would imagine that this started brewing around the time of Cambridge Analytica, but there was no doubt that Facebook had been abusing access to Apple's consumers for years. Lots of Mm. companies had. And they finally just were like, you know what, this is we're seeing where the wind is going and we're seeing what consumers want. We're seeing potentially the end of targeted advertising as a business model. And yeah. We don't, I mean, Tim Cook, I think, was like, yeah, I don't like him. <laughs> like, this is the most like Steve Jobs move. This is a tribute to Steve mm-hmm. Jobs because this is the type of stuff that Steve Jobs would do. Yep. Steve Jobs, when he had enough, he had enough and he would take just, you know, decisive action uh, to stop bad actors, uh, you know, whether it was taking an app out of the app store or, you know, platform wars, whatever it was. Um, this is like 1984. You know, commercial. I wonder when you look at this, I mean, listen, like the truth is that. This is a big drop, right, for Facebook Mm. to lose. What was it? They lost a Shopify and Uber and a Coinbase from their market cap. This is significant. One day, it's really significant. However, objectively, the company is still making a crap ton of money and did make a crap ton of money. Revenue was up 37% year over year. We were just gushing over Google being up 41, right? Yeah, on a bigger number. $39 billion in profit, up 35% year over year. Uh. Facebook is now trading at about five and a half times revenue and 16.9 and a half times profit. Mm. Some contrarians are saying this is now a value play. But I wonder at the point at which you start a decline like this and the sentiment problem that you've identified mm-hmm. is so strong, how much of this is, I mean, I asked, you know, when, when Francis Haugen came forward as a whistleblower and revealed all this internal data, all this stuff that Facebook had been covering up, then you have this sort of like drip, drip, drip of them constantly misreporting numbers right like essentially telling like building an entire pivot to video in the the media world and then being like oh yeah it turns out that was a house of cards we were lying about those numbers all along Mm. and the regulatory issues like is there a ceo in the world of another public company let alone an entire leadership team that would still have their job um you know he has the super voting shares he is the company you know, if he went away right now, you know, a CEO change, I think, would make the stock tank even more because really? at this point, the reason is, I think he's such a hardcore individual and they've already lost so much value that people want, you know, the guy who got his ass kicked in that seat. In other words, he's going to fight. And I think Zuckerberg has a, a certain determination to him. So I would not be surprised if, you know, he he this. um I don't think this will break him. I think this will uh, strengthen his resolve. It's obviously not the end of Facebook, um, but it's the end of them buying big companies because of regulation. And when the stock goes down like this, if you join the company in the last year or two and your stock compensation was based on, you know, a share price that was higher, mm-hmm. you know, this is the kind of move that can uh, cause a little bit of chaos inside the company. People. Are, you know, thought they were worth a million. Now they're worth 600,000, you know, they're worth 70, $750,000 over the next two years. That was going to pay for their mortgage. It, it's going to get in people's heads. And he used to be able to buy people off with the stock price mm-hmm. and people silence, you know, the top employees, et cetera, you know, and, and uh, Francis Haugen, like even those type of people used to get compensated so well uh, that you would basically buy their complacency, I think. And, you know, this is going to be a uh, very hard uh, couple of years. I don't think 
it's going to get better in the next year or two. I well, think I there's think a natural audience for a lot of these products, mm -hmm. and they reached the natural audience in a lot of markets a while ago. And yeah. now there are more options coming, like TikTok, and they can't buy TikTok, right? right. So they used now, to be able to buy the Instagram WhatsApp and avoid this problem. Yeah, mm, totally. Not now I think is when we are going to find out, you know, because there is that mystique around Zuckerberg who has, or Sheryl Sandberg has, right, operated mm -hmm. at an incredible level of execution for the last 15 years. But I think now we find out if that mystique is, is, is valid. Right. Because yeah. when you get into trouble, not the kind of trouble where like a lot of people are mad at you and you can PR your way out of it, but, yeah, they've the, been doing that for a decade. but the $220 billion, you know, <laughs> value loss kind of trouble. Yeah. That's when I guess now we find out, you know, Nikita Byer was tweeting about this as uh, who was a, a former Facebook employee summed up, you know, those big five headwinds, but then said, Zuck is the greatest operator in the world, and I wouldn't bet against him in the I long term. I would not term. bet against him either. Yeah. Um, I do think that nobody wants the metaverse. I'll be <laughs> totally honest. I, and we've had this discussion. Um, I do think the AR glasses are going to be kind of cool. Um, but I think it's, I, we did an over under on this where we thought like, what would be the time period where it'd be a daily use case? I think we said something like nine years or something. Yeah. The renaming of this company is going to be looked at like, um, didn't Netflix do a rename? quickie or something what do they call their yeah they were gonna try and then they were like never rebrand mind. the company and it was like uh yeah always a bad idea yep. so and i don't you know i don't think vr is the win we talked about that i think ar is the win so we'll see but they're also on a collision course so this apple fight i would say this is round one mm -hmm. and then uh, round two is going to be the glasses ar glasses coming so when apple drops those that could let's say apple's ar glasses are iPhones, essentially, and iPads. They're just so delightful that mm -hmm. it's undeniable it's the best product in the world. Okay, what's that going to do to the stock? Right. Okay, you bet the farm yep, on the metaverse. The farm on this, yeah. And you got your ass kicked again by Tim Cook and Apple. That, that's actually the probable outcome. So then they're going to have yep. been beaten down twice. I mean, then who really wants to own the stock if it's like Apple owns you that badly? I know. Uh, Paul Graham had an interesting tweet. Time for Facebook to get to work on that phone, which is something Chamath was working on when he was there. Uh, human like humans like animals are most dangerous when threatened. If I were Tim Cook, I'd have thought twice before threatening Zuck. Uh, YC's always been a little bit in uh, Team Zuck camp for whatever reason. Do we have or did Facebook break out their numbers with respect to their hardware operation? Because, you know, they have that kind of echo show competitor. The little, the gadget that you're supposed oh, to like use in your home. Yeah. Because <laughs> allow Facebook into your home and do video all. calling on it. What do they call that? Horrible. What was that? I know one person who bought it. The Muppets were, yeah, they had the Muppets doing commercials for it. Right. Like mm, I wonder. Portal. 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 Which, oh, right. It had the creepiest name ever on top yeah, of Zuckerberg in your house with a camera and microphone. Exactly what people don't want. Like I sort of feel like however many people bought Portal is however many people might be willing to buy a Facebook phone. Not inclusive of international markets. We shouldn't forget Facebook has huge growth yes. overseas right now. Its biggest growth areas are international. So maybe they come out with like a low price Facebook phone um, in some countries. But I also think that even internationally companies, countries are waking up to the fact that they don't necessarily want Facebook in town, right? I mean, they have that Facebook basics service 
that was like essentially a net neutrality nightmare from the second they even proposed it. I was at that yep. meeting at CES like five years ago where they were like, yeah, we're just going to go into developing countries and offer them free internet service our- ourselves. And we're going to choose all the websites that they have access to. And I think India was the first to be like, no, thank you. Under no circumstances. I'm going to quickly explain one crucial type of insurance that all startups need. E&O insurance that covers errors and omissions, and it helps you scale your business because any major customer is going to ask you, hey, do you have E&O? You need to have E&O if we're going to close this deal. If you want us to sign on the dotted line and you want to get the do-re-mi, you're going to need to have E&O. So if you don't have business insurance, you failed one of the first steps of being a founder. And startups should look no further than our friends over at Embroker. Embroker's technology saves you time and money. Prices are up to 20% lower with better coverage than the incumbents. You can go from sign up to quote and purchase in just 10 minutes. When you work with Embroker instead of the incumbents, you're not dealing with these large, slow corporations. And the sign up takes days, not weeks. The process is totally transparent and there's no opaque pricing because it's 2022, folks. There shouldn't be any opaque pricing, right? Save us time, save us money. That's what Embroker does. And you get a better quality of service. Better faster, cheaper. That's what it's all about. And that's what Embroker does. So to instantly buy custom built insurance for startups, go to imbroker.com slash twist. While you're there, you can get an extra 10% off by using my promo code, which is TWIST, 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 imbroker.com slash twist. I'm just thinking through here, like if they, if they had in the smartphone world 10 years ago, when <clears throat> Chamath was there, and he was supposedly working on the phone, um, and they had done, I thought it could have been powerful for them to buy a, f- a handset manufacturer like HTC maybe or something, somebody who was loved totally. and was doing like interesting new hardware. Cool hardware, yeah. But now you look at the lead that and the scale that Apple has, even Google with an incredible product, uh, you know, th- those pixels are just uh, extraordinary. And I think they've been selling well, but even if he sold them at break even, would people stop buying? Their iPhones? I don't think so. So it's not a lot of money that they're going to make from hardware. I don't know on this chessboard what Zuckerberg's best move is other than to say uh, you can buy a subscription to Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, et cetera, and turn off all advertising and tracking for six bucks a month, $49 a year, and you're going to get all these other features, including photo sharing, storage, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think there's people who would like to have an ad free experience on these sites, I would pay for sure. it. Now I know I'm in the, you know, slow single digit um, minority here. But I think it would actually give them the air cover to say, listen, we have a free ad product. And for four ninety five a month, and $49 a year, you can have no ads in your feed and you get, you know, a very ad free experience. And we understand some people prefer that just like some people like HBO. And some people like to not pay for TV and get free TV with ads on Hulu or whatever it is. I mean, it's the power move. It's probably the power move. It stops their developing nation growth, or at least it's not going to be a huge growth area in developing countries. So, Mm. you know, if you think of that, so a move to a more premium product puts them is a power move against Apple. But it also, Mm -hmm. you know, right now, the thing that Facebook has that that few other companies have is that it's a massive global free product. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of a massive growth move, probably not. I think not. it would stop and then the regulatory that, issues, like the politician issues. It would stop that, but it wouldn't yeah. necessarily stop the you know daily active user issue because it's not going to move the needle 
mm-hmm. on an operation that has whatever it is, 200 billion, 2.8, sorry, 2.8 billion people using it. How many people are going to pay for that? Like 100 million, 150 mm-hmm. million globally? Yeah. I mean, listen, it's, it would be a small number of people. That would be 10%, almost 10. If 10 per, they have 3 billion people using their products, I think, yeah, across all products. Mm-hmm. So they are 3 billion people. Could it be 5%? No, maybe 2%, 60 yeah. million people. So I don't think it would be like this crazy revenue driver. It would be nice. Uh, but it would also let them start every discussion. We understand there's totally. a group of people who want to pay and there's a group of people who want free. And mm-hmm. we offer both at the top of your feed. We have the thing here where we upsell people on subscribers and they can say, you know, yes, no, maybe. And here's the percentages. So now you understand what the world is, you know, wants. In our chat, by the way, 27 votes in so far. Producers wanted to know, would you buy a Facebook phone, something that is your main consumer internet device? Uh, currently, that tally sits at 95% no. <laughs> 95% no. 95% no. That's a reputation problem. Oh, look at and that. Then, let's job, do the numbers on the... Uh, business, the future business, Meta. Yes. The Reality Labs segment uh, mm-hmm. of the business had the following numbers. 800, I mean, listen, we've heard numbers like this before and it wasn't always yeah. a deal killer, but I'm just saying this is what they bet the new company yeah. on. $877 million of revenue in mm-hmm. Q4 with a $3.3 billion net loss. Okay, so they, yeah, that's um, that means they're 3.3 times 4 is a 13.2. So they've said they'll invest $10 billion a year. It's more. And currently they're losing more money than they've said they're going to invest. So they're losing that and they're losing the 10 billion a year. So that's $24 billion a year in losses between the headwinds of the Apple privacy changes and this. It's just a lot of money going out the door. And yeah, I wonder if Apple, do you think Apple... Because they were working on the AR headset and saw Facebook as their top competitors, were like, how else can we screw with Facebook? Yeah, let's take their core business, let's take their high margin business, and let's ankle that while we're going after their future. Very possibly. A hundred percent. Like, uh, I'm, I'm certain that development on Apple's glasses mm-hmm. has accelerated since Facebook changed its name to Meta and said that we're going to take... because. Honestly, I can even see Tim Cook philosophically being like, there is no way in hell that we are letting this company basically own the next world. The next platform. The world, right? If if Mark Zuckerberg's goal is for all of us to live in the metaverse, like reality player one style, Mm. you know that Tim Cook from a business perspective and possibly a humanity perspective was like, no, 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 no. We got to stop that in its tracks. Um. I think this is a net good. This is a net good for the world. I mm-hmm. am thrilled to see this. I've never liked Zuckerberg. I think he's a bad. He's been bad for our industry. I think he pissed in the well and created so much the well that we all have to build companies from, which is consumer trust. Mm-hmm. And um, I've never liked the guy. I think he's a bad actor. I think he's a bad human being. I think he treats people poorly. Uh, other companies. Um, and I'm glad to see his demise. I hope it continues. Uh, and I hope other companies now look at Facebook as a hobbled company and they don't sell their companies to Zuck. And I've been saying this for a decade. Never sell your company to Zuck. Mm-hmm. Keep building it. Go to venture capitalists. Raise more money. Compete with Zuck. This is not the person we want 
to have defining the future of humanity based on his track record, based on what he says, and based on how he views the world. He's got a weird worldview of how the world should work, and uh, he should not have influence. The decline of his stock price is the decline of his influence is the decline of people wanting to work with him. And if you are a talented person, I implore you to go work on climate change, go to Tesla, or go work for a world positive company in some way, right? Any job, but Facebook meta is a, a better job. This is the worst place you could go work if you're a talented person. And if you are an entrepreneur, compete with them. Just keep hammering and competing against them. Uh, and if you're talented, don't go work there. I can add a single thing to that, except for a men. Yeah. I mean, I just. I think there's one interesting angle that you didn't cover. Um, so regarding their hardware, I remember Zach Colius was on and he he was talking about how he got the Facebook portal and he said it was, I think he said it was better than any iPad he'd ever had, uh -huh. but Facebook's reputation for privacy is so bad that yeah. nobody wants it anyway. So there's kind of an interesting take you could have where no matter how good their hardware is, it has to be 50% better than anything else anyway, just to overcome how bad their reputation is. Yeah, I, I'm not in disagreement with you on that. I think we, I think we beat this one into the ground. <laughs> And I hope that they continue. Uh, and uh, you know what? If you're working there, we quit. Facebook into the ground. I, I, and just if you're working there, it's just not worth it. Like when you go to your kid's soccer game, where you're at the dinner party, people are like, where do you work? Like I've been yeah. at these uncomfortable dinners and I, I work in tech. It's like, oh, really? I was, I was you work in one. tech? Totally. Where do you work? <laughs> I, I work in social media and tech. Huh? Oh, what are you working on? Uh, I'm working on like, uh, you know, uh, uh, augmented reality mm -hmm. oh really where uh, uh, in um silicon valley oh where in silicon valley yeah he's palo alto <laughs> you know like in yeah. the wider bay area no no what company are you working at facebook <laughs> it's basically like saying you work at a cigarette company it's like you work at jewel or you work in tobacco we have a nice little chart here showing by the way that mm. one of i mean to the point that jamath made on all in all right. The, when the rot starts from begin from the mm -hmm. from inside and you can't yes. hire, look at this. The median tenure of employees at this point at Facebook appears to be oh, about one point wow. eight years. Yeah. I so mean no our industry what, does churn. But yeah. It does. But no matter what you want to build, you mm -hmm. can't build it if you're constantly training, if you're constantly rehiring, if you're constantly like having to, you know, re-download institutional knowledge into new drones. Like that, it churn is a problem for companies. Yeah. It's time for another R Crowd deal of the week. Right now, you can join R Crowd's investment in HIL Applied Medical. According to the deal memo, they are using Nobel Prize winning technology to bring the most advanced radiotherapy treatment to cancer patients. HIL's world first laser based system has earned them an agreement with Proton International, which is the largest proton therapy operator in the US and Europe. And you can invest in HIL Applied Medical at rcrowd.com slash angel all around the world companies like hil apply medical are innovating and driving returns for investors and our crowd analyzes many of these companies across the global private market then they select the ones with the greatest growth potential and bring them to you from personalized medicine to cybersecurity and now proton therapy a 20 billion dollar total addressable market according to their deal memo in state-of-the-art labs startup garages and anywhere in between our crowd identifies innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest, and that's early. So here's your call to action. If you're an accredited investor, you can join our crowd for free at OURCROWD.com slash angel. 
to review the current deals. There is no payment involved until you decide to invest. That's rcrowd.com slash angel to sign up for free. I really don't have a solution. Like if I was inside, if like suddenly Zuck called me on the phone and was like, Jake, Al, you're right. Be my professional coach. And I, he's like, meet me and we'll go for a hike or something. We'll go skiing or something. I really wouldn't, I, I would be at a, a loss. I, I mean, the only thing I can think of is maybe breaking the company up, maybe spinning out WhatsApp, spinning out Instagram and seeing if like they stand alone, if those management teams could then make something better. Uh, I don't know. I think that I'm, they're all, all the, all the founders of those companies are gone. Yeah. Maybe you go like back the fact to that Kevin Sistrom. left too. That's a big deal. Oh, this would be the power move. The, you give Instagram back to Kevin Sistrom mm-hmm. and you, you say, Hey, we're going to spin it out, make it a public company. We'll give you 10% ownership in it over 10 years. You can vest and you're the CEO. You know, what's interesting about Facebook employees right now too. And this tells you, by the way, like nothing's ever going to happen with, and the name change is a sign. Nothing's ever going to happen with Facebook, the blue F. Like mm. hardly anybody that you talk to who works at Facebook anymore works on that product. I mean, that's the product that Facebook does not care about. It brings in the money, but Crazy. all they care about is using it to fund the other things. And so you meet a lot of Facebook people who are like, well, I don't work on that product, mm. right? I work on this over here. I'm working on AI. Um, like, you know, sure, it sounds like a lot of people are in metaverse and that's true, but most of them are working on machine learning and AI somehow within this company. Mm. And they're they're allowing themselves to dodge the cigarette selling part of the business. But also it shows you the level of investment they even have in, you know, the newsfeed. Like, they don't funny, care. Funny joke. Somebody just texted me or messaged me. I'd rather have Pornhub on my resume than Meta. <laughs> like, it's like, mom's like, oh, uh, you got a new job? Yes, I got a new job, mom. I left Meta to go work at Pornhub. I think a good career move good in call, fact. <laughs> good call. Good call. You know what? You're literally... a sex positive kid. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, Casey Neistat, one of my favorites. Too much mm-hmm. video in my IG feed. Scrolling is stressful now. I just want to look at pictures. If I want video, I will push the little video bit button. Video is different, not better. Give me back my grams, please. What do you think of that take, Molly? I mean, that's the other thing, right, is that they're killing the products that they do own. I mean, if did you read the amazing Bloomberg woman, Sarah Fryer, Sarah Fryer had that good book about Facebook and the Instagram acquisition and all of the ways that once Facebook bought it, they were trying to turn it into an ad machine. They were starving Instagram of the resources that it could have used. Right. They didn't understand and embrace the creator part of that business early like Facebook is in the process of very and then it was like then they had IGTV and literally every every user was yeah. like nope and then, nope. I mean, it's <laughs> like where would that go stories they stole stories they stole stories and Pretty that effectively i has think worked for sure yeah. but yeah. they didn't steal tiktok right like it's sort of no. and then now tiktok now they're is, shoehorning tiktok in right and i don't want that not, tiktok is just i you know what happens with tiktok it's like i go on tiktok and then 30 minutes of my life are gone and I can't remember one thing I watched. And I'm like, okay, that was a bad use of my time. I should go find a classic film or a book or anything would be better content than what just happened, you know, to that 30 minutes of my life. But that's true, but it is crushing it. After an accidental hour on TikTok, which does happen. Literally, we're confessing to being heroin addicts right now. Home of the accidental hour. But the thing is like, after I spend an accidental hour on TikTok, I yeah. feel happier. And this is because of my feed, right? Which is all like howling huskies and cute animals. But mm-hmm. like, I feel happy. Whereas mm-hmm. when I look at Instagram, 
I feel sad. Like mm-hmm. I feel FOMO Definitely. or everybody's got their perfect life or I'm like, I feel like a failure somehow or I watched too many videos or there were too many freaking ads and I spent $100 and yeah. I'm mad about it. Whereas TikTok is a joyful experience. I just want and to tell my is a big problem for Facebook. It makes me feel my contemporaries on Instagram, you know, in other words, men in their 40s and 50s, put your shirts back on. I mean, sorry. (laughs) Just stop. Stop. Mine is like, this has to stop. Mine is like dwell. And then somebody who's having a cute family vacation that I wish I was on and then an ad. And then it's like some other thing that makes me feel bad and then an ad, right? Like there's so many freaking, and then a video that I don't want to click through and watch the rest of because it's on IGTV, which again, nope. No one wants that. My, my Instagram is now it. my friends who are divorced doing yoga or kiteboarding uh, and then basically letting folks know they are now shooting themselves full of testosterone and HGH and they have more muscle and lower body fat than they did in their 20s. And I'm like, how'd that happen so fast? And they're like, I don't know. And I just really I'm shooting hard. a ton of testosterone in to my leg and and like literally it, it just stop h i too follow so jeff bezos h yeah, oh! Follow, oh and that's just bezos i mean what is going on with bezos he's taking it way too i don't want to body shame anybody <laughs> the guy looks he has bezos huge looks like a linebacker he has huge orexia yeah he literally looks like a linebacker and you i'm don't just like gain like children listen to my words you don't gain muscle mass after 40 that no. Is not Hard happening do. naturally. I mean, you could gain five or ten pounds. What's his routine? Like his lat pull down has to be out of control. He it's he's all TB. He's all about TB twelve. He's on the Tom Brady plan. <laughs> yeah, right. He's doing <laughs> resistance bands. Okay, what? No. Is Tom Brady the guy from the Patriots who cheated to win the Super Bowls? That's the guy who cheated to win the Take Super Bowls. Help. I just did that on purpose. R.I.P. Your mentions, bro. I do it all the time. I do it all the time. Oh, the guy from the Patriots, right? The guy who cheated to win the Super Bowl so many times. And people are just like, he didn't cheat. I'm like, no, if you deflate the balls, that's against the rules, right? That's cheating. Oh, my God. Whatever he's doing. They caught him cheating, right? And they were taking the signals of the other people to cheat, right? Oh, my God. I brought my my brother his book. from Boston so much. It's so great to do. All right, let's go on. Speaking of cheating, yes, stealing. So let's move on. Okay, there's an NFT site, uh, non-ironically called HitPiece. Wow. Uh, and it's been accused of selling, I kid you not, artist songs without permission. According to the New York Post, in an interview with the Business Builders Podcast, co-founder Ryan Felton explained how HitPiece worked. HitPiece was built on Spotify's API, giving them access to the catalog of music that's on uh, Spotify, which is everything. The goal of Hit Piece was for users to show off that they had owned their favorite songs. Artists got royalties from the initial auction, and when the NFT was traded, the article noted that Hit Piece didn't give any details on how these proceeds would be divided. The New York Post reported, quote, each NFT offering gave buyers ownership of a unique song recording. According to Hit Piece, people who purchased NFTs were also promised accompanying real-life perks, including access to experiences with artists. The band, the Human Fly... Dove into Ryan Felton on Twitter. You can pick it up from here, Molly. <laughs> Did a deep dive on the guy below, writes uh, this band's Twitter account, somebody in the band, The Human Fly. Did a deep dive on the guy below, Ryan Felton, the co-founder of Hitpiece. I don't think we totally know what we're dealing with here, and I'm actually a little alarmed. First off, they point out the guy is not a rando. He's a legitimate music industry player. Via LinkedIn, he ran the Militia Group, a Sony music acquisition, for 12 years. He's also a former Billboard 30 Under 30 
exec, but they go on to say this manifesto that he published on LinkedIn, which was titled How to Win the Music Industry of 2019 to 2025, is absolutely terrifying. They say a lot of it is tech jargon, but there are pieces that provide clues to where these folks' heads are at. And where these folks' heads are at is that in the future, AI will analyze songs to predetermine their quality, not to mention, evidently, they will just take them and sell them without permission as NFTs. Okay, we're now in crazy land. I'm trying to... Oh, yeah, it's Rory Felton. Okay, just not Ryan. Um, oh, oh, sorry, Rory Felton. Because well, no, the he, he like, asterisked out the... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I think people do this if they don't want the person who is doing an ego search for themselves or has an alert yep. to find out you're talking to them. Because people did that to me. Yeah. They would okay, say... So apologies know, to Ryan. Rory Felton is the guy we mean. Well, anyway, no apologies to this guy because obviously from what we're looking at here, um, he's a thief uh, and lost his mind. This is a, a serious problem. Um, I've had this happen a ton of times now where people are like, hey, I want to create NFTs for all in for this week in startups, yada, yada. And they're like, we're launching them tomorrow. Can we send you 10% of the proceeds? I'm like, no. They're like, you don't want the proceeds? I'm like, no, you, I'm not giving you permission to do this. And they're like, why not? We're fans. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's great mm-hmm. that you're a fan. If you're a fan, buy the album, buy a ticket, buy a t-shirt from the merch store. Great. Don't steal people's IP, intellectual property. A meme is different. If you make a meme and you make a joke, that's different. If you make a business, where did the IP come from? And that's the difference here. And people are taking the behavior of fans, like fan fiction, or like, I don't know, I'm going to draw a picture of Bezos looking buff because I'm a Bezos fan and I want to have, you know, my own fan fiction of jeff bezos as the rock or he's going to be the new lead in fast and furious 17 that's Mm -hmm. fine you're not selling it if you want to make a fan film about darth vader you can actually do that if you don't make money because star wars has actually said we'll be okay with some fan films yada yada (laughs) that's not this that is not this and that's not the pod clips thing I was talking about the other day where they were taking every Tim Ferriss episode, every This Week in Startups episode, every right. All In Perms without permission and building a business on it. Not You have to ask first. You can't ask after. You have to ask first. Yeah. Well, and this is, I mean, it's very interesting because what it appears to be happening is two separate things. here. I mean, we had this conversation yesterday, right, about how sort yes. of the aggregation model of the internet has led to this idea and frankly, when it gets combined with NFTs has led to the idea that you can make yourself into a creator and then make money off of anything, including stuff that other people have created. And that there's, of course, going to be plenty of scenarios in which that goes too far. This seems like maybe a double whammy where hit piece mm. or as people in the comments on LinkedIn are calling it, obviously, piece um, mm. has used possibly machine learning and AI to pull in songs that it thinks are going to be a hit and then resell them as nfts and it almost feels like it's this automated process and then basically musicians are discovering that the music has gone up on the site without their approval i may have mischaracterized that but that's my understanding of putting those two things together the linkedin piece with what's actually happening here yeah and And they're not happy like short version they are also i'll give you a little piece of advice if you're going to pick an industry or a person to steal from the mob and the mm-hmm. music industry yeah. are going to be in the top like five of people same, you same. do not steal from. Kind of same, same. On the well, hit piece. you said it, not me. Like, 
Yeah. You don't steal from them. Also, Hollywood, don't steal movies from Hollywood. They have a lot of lawyers. They live for this. And what they will do is they'll make an example out of you, which I hope they do here. I hope they sue this person and make an example of him and shut his company down. Because there needs to be some examples where, and listen, I'm a startup investor, but I guarantee you this person knows they're breaking the law. This is a person who's in the industry. You must make an example. If you're in the industry, you know it. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's this other thing of making tools, by the way, I'll just finish with this. Yeah. If you make a tool that is designed explicitly to facilitate copyright infringement, you know, and it's not Canva, like, so sure, somebody on Canva could steal somebody's photo or somebody with, uh, you know, I, I don't know, Adobe Premiere, you could steal people's movies and then edit them. And, you know, like, those are generic tools that the primary use is not stealing. But here, the primary use of this tool, if it is in fact designed to pull from Spotify, where all the music is copyrighted, like that's not the bastion of right. um, uh, Creative Commons. Now, if you yep. were pulling from the Creative Commons library and saying make an NFT, mm-hmm. and it said, hey, you pulled from the no attribution section of Creative Commons, here's what you have to do. Hey, you pulled from the attribution, make sure you put an attribution on it or we're going to do that for you. Mm-hmm. That would be thoughtful, right? Right, that sure. would be fine. Public there are domain, search engines. Aggregated of, all. Yeah. Yeah. Th- there was literally a search engine of um, creative. There's a Creative Commons search engine. So if you want free content, start there and make NFTs from Creative Commons stuff. Yep. On the Hippies Twitter account, they responded to the allegations by saying, clearly, we have struck a nerve and are very eager to create the ideal experience for music fans. To be clear, artists be clear. get paid when digital goods are sold on Hippies. Like all beta products, we are continuing to listen to all user feedback and are committed to evolving the product to fit the needs of artists, labels, and fans alike. Causing the son of Eddie Van Halen, Wolfgang Van Halen, to respond, ha 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 Ooh, you can also mint this interaction, auction it, and then shove it up your ass. You wow. have my full permission. He's definitely a Van Halen. That was it, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's definitely on that family line. Great, that's awesome. The, that's, that's the sound of a, nerve, of a nerve being struck. <laughs> Here's, I mean, and then there are some other musicians who are not going to respond to you on Twitter. They're going to meet you outside your house with a pipe. Like, <laughs> be careful, dude. Like, What's that movie where they talk about the VIG? The movie about the music industry that's just like, yeah. don't touch the VIG or something. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just, look up like mob, do that. music industry, like crazy, you know, people with, I, I have a friend in the music industry who told me like, you know, somebody had sampled something and I'll, I'll abstract this so it's not identifiable. Anyway, somebody had, you know, basically showed up with their crew with guns in their belts. Walked into the musician. This is like artists who, you know, some people listening would know. And this happened long ago. Literally showed up. Knocked on the door. The person opened the door to the recording studio. And they just bashed it in and showed up and literally pulled out a gun. Pointed it at the artist. And said, sign this piece of paper. <laughs> oh, like, and well, this is well. like crazy. Oh. You know, who knows if this is true or not. But this is somebody in the music industry who's in the know. Well, I'm literally just- like sign this and the person literally signed it like i don't sign it i don't and like to this day i think that that is a binding legal agreement wow and that person was like yeah i don't feel the need to report this crime 
even like setting aside the guns <laughs> and the mob behavior, look yeah. at how artists have had to fight for pennies since yes. the since music is right because the music industry, the recording industry kept such a freaking stranglehold on CDs for so long that then when music really did start going digital, they weren't profiting. Then streaming came along and you would get like a million streams on YouTube for like a quarter of a penny. And mm. then they had to fight so hard to get paid yes. through Spotify at all. So yep. musicians are out here finally figuring they had to sell concert tickets for $300. Like musicians are out here finally figuring out how to make a living from the digital music economy, for which I blame record labels and so do they, but still. And then along comes this freaking guy or yeah. NFTs or whatever, just being like, we're just going to take it and turn uh, it into a, a token. This apology was so terrible. <laughs> was it written in notes? Like it's, <laughs> This feels like one of those apologies that was written in notes and then screenshotted. Is it a screenshot apology? <laughs> just, it's, it's a cut and paste apology, I think, for sure. No, nah, I think it it's notes? a screen. Yeah. C confirmation from the producers. Oh, it is amazing. a classic notes. If you're writing your apology, not on Twitter natively or Instagram natively, but you're taking the time to do it in the notes app and edit it and share it with your crisis team. Yeah, you did something really bad. That's yep. when you know when you're that's when you're effed. You're yeah. seriously f when you're fracked <laughs> when you're screenshotting notes. That's the point in life where you need to reflect, Molly. <laughs> And possibly if, change the name of your company. And maybe. <laughs> yeah, good callback. Yes. <laughs> Zuckerberg writes his apology to shareholders and to government officials in the Apple Notes. In the Apple Notes, totally. Oh, oh beautiful. God. Beautiful. All right, All everybody. Right. Let's get to our interview with Paige. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Angel Season 6, Episode Number 4. This is the season of the Angel Podcast where we're talking to first-time fund managers. Yes, people who have raised their first fund and they're finding their way in the venture community and making those bets with the hope that you, if you're interested in either getting their money as a founder, can understand how they're placing their bets, or perhaps you're thinking about raising your own fund and you want to hear from somebody who's fresh in the game, who's just closed their first fund. Really great lineup so far, and today will be no difference. In our first episode, we had Mac the VC. Nice $10 million tight fund. I see that he announced he's going to raise a $75 to $100 million fund now. He's with Rare Breed. Uh, David Rosenthal, our friend from Acquire, the podcast, he is doing Kindergarten VC. Nice $3 million uh, fund. His My First Fund trial, just to see if he could get it done. And uh, he's done great with that. And then we had Packy McCormick from Not Boring, a great email newsletter content creator who is, uh, let's face it, taking a playbook that some of you may have heard from, Podcast Plus Fund Equals. Uh, interesting. And today on The Firm, I think the youngest venture capitalist we've ever had, Paige Van Darty, is from Behind Genius Ventures. She just graduated in 20, wait for it, 20. And she has her own fund. Previously, she was an on-deck angel fellow in 2021. We'll hear about that. And uh, she graduated from San Diego State in 2020, worked at TVC Capital. BCIC and Northrop Grumman during college. She's the author of Seed to Harvest, a Simple Explanation of Venture Capital, published in May of 2021. It's a children's book made to demystify venture capital. And she's got her own podcast uh, called Seed to Harvest, and it's based on the book. Welcome to the program, Paige. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Jason. It's an honor to be here. 
Oh, thank you for saying that. And uh, congratulations on the success. When, uh, I, I'm guessing you're 22 or 23 years old, if I'm yeah, guessing 23. 23. Let me ask this question. When did you first hear the term venture capital? How did you become exposed to this? And then we'll get into how you very quickly figured out how to start your own fund. Sure. Um, the first time I heard venture capital was probably in 20. 18, I had been selected to compete on our school's first ever venture capital investment competition team at San Diego State. I previously thought that venture capital was something that old dudes like sat around in mahogany libraries smoking cigars and picking companies. And I just came from the mahogany library (laughs) and I just put out my uh, Macanudo. So I know we're not in person, so I can't smell the cigar. So, (laughs) Um, but I ended up binge watching. Silicon Valley over my winter break of my junior year and through seeing strong female characters in venture capital roles, I started to understand that there was a place in this industry for folks who didn't come from generational wealth and had different backgrounds. And so started to build a playbook around what my role in venture might be. Ended up taking second place to the reigning national champs our first year with about two months of cramming. And uh, I remember sitting in the partner meeting at Google where we competed, being absolutely grilled by all of these venture partners and loving it. There was a spark for me that I had never felt before. And I just felt at home in that mock partner meeting. Yeah. So that's what sparked my interest originally. And now it's, it's fun. It's come full circle. Now I'm coaching the VCIC team at SDSU. So cool to get back in that way. That's amazing that your college actually had a venture capital club, basically, that competed. And uh, what an amazing way to get exposed to all this. Now, you're, you watch Silicon Valley one break. <laughs> you binge watch it. Yes. Now, there are two very specific female venture capitalists on this show. Yes. One of them, I was told is a little bit Asperger-y and was based on a hybrid of maybe Peter Thiel and Marissa Mayer. And Marissa, I don't think is Asperger-y, but they said a little robotic. Uh, and uh, then there was one who was a little more, more heartfelt and who was a little closer and who was the, bo- who was the junior to the, the senior female. Which one did you identify <laughs> with more? I think I resonated with both of them in certain circumstances. I think my journey being an empath and like Mm. uh, no is a word you say a lot in this industry, which is very difficult. I resonated a lot with the character journey of the second one. Yeah, the more junior one who was the heartfelt one. You see her start very starry-eyed and super excited and you watch her learn more about how the venture ecosystem works and develop what I like to describe as the whetstone and like um basically sharpening your decision knife i think that's been one of my biggest learnings becoming a fund manager um is like how to make those sharp decisions and communicate them with warmth and em- warmth and empathy mm. uh so let's let's double click on that sharpening mm-hmm. the knife and making decisions when you first yeah. uh started investing and making those decisions what did you think was the proper framework to make a decision and you know whatever, 12 months later, what have you learned? And, and what do you think is the best practice? What is your methodology for picking a founder and a company to invest in? 
So there's a couple parts of that question. I'll start yeah. first on the question about developing an investment process. One of my mentors and investor in our fund, Andy Wiseman, told me during our first call that the investment process is just that, a process. You're not going to know if you're good at it for another seven to 10 years. So you might as well chronicle the journey, do the best that you can, ask lots of questions from founders, operators, investors along the way, and try and hone into what your intuition is saying about the types of founders that you like to work with. Venture can be done a thousand different ways, whether that's portfolio construction or thesis. And it's really about a process of self-discovery of what you want to invest in, the types of founders that you want to back. And so the first deal that I did was a company previously called Cardea, now called Palette. You might have seen it on Twitter, their community-oriented job board platform. And when I met the founder, I was working at WorkWest, which is API first startup, had never made an investment, but I was introducing different investors and founders to each other. And I remember getting off the phone with him after our first conversation and just having such table thumping enthusiasm in the idea he was building. I was like, I need to be involved. I want to be a part of what he's building. And so I ended up asking for allocation and with no idea what I was going to do with that allocation. Um, I woke up the next morning. I was like, okay, cool. So like got to find 50K somewhere. And I'm a recent college grad. I definitely don't have that. And so I ended up raising 50K from 17 investors. For those of you familiar with SPVs, that's a lot of small checks. Um, And it's been really fun over the past year because a lot of those folks that invested in my first syndicate were first-time angel investors, people like David Wong and Jamie Melser. And to see their journey as investors has been really rewarding. But my first decision came from having that feeling of conviction in the founder, their team, the size of the market. It was a creator-oriented company. And so as a creator myself, I felt deep empathy with the problem that uh, Kai was describing. So that's how my first decision was made. And So uh, let's step back for a second. You um, decided you wanted to start a fund as opposed to go work for one, or did you consider hey, maybe I'll apply since I won this competition and I'm enthusiastic about it. Maybe I'll go work for somebody or a firm and (laughs) learn from them as opposed to say the boldness of just starting your own fund. Yeah, I think about this theme of creative constraints a lot. I was talking with Heather Hornet at Human Ventures, who's one of our LPs about the decision to start a fund versus join one. For me, one of those creative constraints was when I was a senior in college, I was exploring opportunities in venture and I had gotten an offer from a firm in Boston to be their youngest partner track associate. But when it came down to the day to make the decision, I was mulling it over and I really wanted to stay in San Diego where my family is. And I remember just being like, all right, universe, if you want to give me a sign on what the correct decision is to make, I would really appreciate it. And that next morning, Kobe Bryant died. And my entire timeline was flooded with like, you know, pick your own agenda and spend time with your family and think about your legacy. And for me, it was such an overwhelming sign that I should make the decision to stay with my family. That was February 6th, 2020. A month later, we were in lockdown. My senior year effectively came to an end and went online. 
And I kind of tucked away that dream of working in venture, got a great position, early stage startup, saw it from the inside. But in 2019, I had conceived this idea that in 10 years, I wanted to run a fund. It just ended up happening on a shorter timeline. So let's get into that. You uh, make this decision. Uh, Mm -hmm. Your heart tells you, I got to stay with my family. I got to make my own fund. Uh, How did you decide and and who kind of taught you and how did you figure out how to start your own SPV and then start your own fund? And and how did you find the first LP? Yeah, it's really funny because no one talks about it. This is like something I would Google and be like, how to start an SPV. And there was all of these clickbaity SEO articles and that had no I no real insight into how they worked. And so I was I was going through my journey of creating an SPV. Actually my business partner Josh Slizerman and I were introduced the same week that I gained allocation into this deal. So I was drilling him with questions about the logistics of an SPV. At its core, uh, an SPV or special special purpose vehicle is a group of investors that you gather together and act as the pass-through vehicle to invest in a startup. What a common misconception is, is that people need to have legal entities in place before they make the investment. In my experience, it's actually the other way around where you should have the commitments and allocation Mm in more of a handshake form before you go through the process of legally forming a syndicate. It is around $2,500, I believe. I went through a sure for forming my yeah. first SPV. and That's who we use. Yeah. Yep. And we're actually investors in the company. Yeah, they're so really So thank great. you for your uh, patronage. Absolutely. I'm big fans of Assure. I actually DM'd Landon, who's the managing director of Assure Syndicates. And I was like, hey, I got allocation of this deal have no idea how to set up a syndicate, heard you were good oh. at it. <laughs> and he helped me through the whole process. So so basically you're on Twitter, you're yeah. meeting people on Twitter, yep. you're sliding into their DMs and saying, how do I do this? Yes. And lo and behold, people wanted to help you. Yeah, it's amazing. That's how you met the, yep. how to do an SPV. Mm-hmm. That's where you met the startup you wanted to invest in. And that's where you met your LPs. Yes. Correct? And my business partner, we got introduced by someone that Uh, followed both of us on Twitter. Yeah. See, this is the thing. People look at Twitter and they're like, well, Twitter's kind of a waste of time. And what you're telling me is you built your entire professional network from zero to having your own fund at 20, you say you're 22 or 23? Yeah. 23. And you did the fund when you were 22. Mm -hmm. You went from like zero to hero, like. Mm. On Twitter. <laughs> Definitely not there yet, but... Uh, well, I mean, I would say raising your first fund is a very significant moment in time for anybody who wants to... There's plenty of people who've been working in venture capital for 20 Absolutely. years who haven't started their own fund. So you get that first SPV under your belt. Mm. You start going to people and saying, I have an allocation. Would you like to put money in? Tell us about yep. the first deal in terms of how many people, how much money, et cetera. Yeah. As I mentioned before, my first deal, I had 50K in allocation. And I ended up having 17 folks invest. David Wong, who's the director of design at Webflow, ended up being one of the first folks to invest. We had previously been editing a lot of each other's writing. He was one of the largest. I raised a GoFundMe to illustrate Seed to Harvest because I also was a broke college student at the time when I was writing it. Mm. And so that's how David and I originally met. I had no idea who he was and randomly donated $500 to this project. And I was like, hey, 
what's up? Would love to get to know you. Thanks so much for, uh, you know, donating to this project. I really appreciate it and have built a friendship over the years. He sent me such an incredible card last year. And one of my favorite quotes from it was, thank you so much for setting my dreams into motion. And that for me has been one of the most rewarding parts of my journey is I'm trying to write about how to set up an SPV. I'm writing, this is going to be a much longer article, but uh, you know how to go about raising your first fund and things you should be aware of. And sharing that information so that one day p- other people's journeys can be shorter than mine was. Yeah, I learned like a they lot, could actually but- <laughs> raise their first fund when they're a senior 16. in high school. I mean, <laughs> it's actually- really, they, it, there's really not much earlier you can go. Um, no. But <laughs> I think, well, you know, it's interesting. It's kind of like a joke, but it's not. We started investing earlier and earlier in founders. And obviously the people dropped out of college famously, Zuckerberg yeah. and um elizabeth holmes and uh bill gates like that was kind of a tradition like yeah if you're that good quit uh in in two or three of those cases and then before that then we started to see high school students start companies and we had a situation where we had a high uh we accepted somebody into our accelerator and one of them was 16 years old and we're like uh do we need to get a permission slip for this do you have classes (laughs) and we like literally had to double click on that and figure out hey is this uh, copacetic and, and it, yeah yeah and it was copacetic uh so you then decide you're going to start your own fund mm-hmm. and uh how does that come about you were talking to a shore about funds or angel list or quarter or something and they said hey you know you could start your own fund or you just decided i should have a fund to invest out of so i don't have to fire up an spv every time yeah so the joke is on me because one of the running motivations for starting a fund was doing less paperwork, but now putting together taxes for 120 oh investors. Boy. Yeah. I'm definitely not doing less paperwork. <laughs> um, Admin in venture and back office is like uh, it, 10 years ago, it was incredibly arduous. It's become yeah. a lot better because of Carta, Assure, and AngelList and other services, but it's still intense. 100%. So to give a quick bit of context, one of my other creative constraints was I wasn't um, an accredited investor. Mm. And so that meant that I couldn't raise on Angelus, which was a bit um, frustrating. And and to explain to people, an accredited investor is somebody who makes $200,000 a year at yeah. school. And you were a person who had internships, but never a job. I was working full time at WorkWest, but I definitely okay. wasn't over that line yet got it and and i actually think that has to be your last two years of income yeah it has to be last two years but the thing is you can organize a syndicate and raise a fund without being an accredited investor and i think that's something that a lot of people don't know is you can be the connecting node you just can't invest directly it has to be like through the entity that you set up that is a partnership so that's a that's a fun fact for anyone listening that is wondering. It about- is fascinating when you think about it. You're not qualified according to these oh, yeah. regulations, which are evolving in fairness. Um, and people know they need to change and that's in process. But you're not, in theoretically, a person is not good enough to invest in a company, but they can help other people invest in companies. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> this is <Interesting>. strange. <laughs> yeah. It's really weird. It's, there's this, there's a theme that I call the trust coefficient. And I feel like that's a big part of it is having accredited investors trust your decision-making skills. Mm -hmm. So the genesis of the fund really was me meeting uh, my co-founder at Behind Genius Ventures, Josh, through the process of doing my SPV, ended up deploying 
personally around 300K in early stage syndicate deals over the course of three months. And at that point, I was working full-time at Request. I was doing this on nights and weekends. I was writing a book. It was getting a bit overwhelming. And then I was like, you know, it would be great. Just a point on the side. Did your boss know you were doing this on the side or you're doing this on the side? Okay, so you cleared it with him. I told him when I signed my offer, I was like, hey, just let you know, I'm going to raise a venture fund in the future. And that's probably going to be my next path. I don't think that he was expecting it to be six months after I started, but that's how the cookie crumpled. Um, So I'd I'd met Josh and he was really close with two folks that were very instrumental in our fund. So Arjun Sethi at Tribe Capital and Smeet Gajri, who's the ex-CSO of Carta. And so- And Arjun had previously worked at Social Capital with Chama. Yes, exactly. Um, Actually, we invested in uh, a founder who's ex-Social Capital, Justin Archetype. Really enjoyed working with him. He said great things about his time there. Um, So Josh had had this interest and he was a bit on the fence about pursuing it full time um, and was just kind of thinking through that. And when we had met, it was funny, we had both told our friends when we got off the first call that we had, I have this intuitive feeling that I'm supposed to work with this person and neither of us could place it. And so we ended up meeting in halfway between San Diego and LA, where we each live in Laguna Beach. And this was peak COVID in December 2020 timeframe. So we sat six feet apart outside with masks on, notebooks out, and just running through what would it look like to build a venture firm of our dreams. And that was the genesis of Behind Genius Ventures. From there, we started fundraising in March and just wrapped up. So took us about nine months start to finish ended up raising five million and 17 cents we were oversubscribed by 17 cents thank you um and one of the interesting things is we were actively deploying as we were fundraising so that was quite a time of actively deploying fundraising working full-time and publishing a book and I just started working full-time on Behind Genius in July of last mm. year. So it's been quite a ride. And uh, the book, I think, probably showed people that you're creating stuff in the world and you're passionate. That that must have kept coming up when you talk to LPs, right? Like, oh, what a clever idea. Yeah. Uh, talk about this concept of instead of talking about doing stuff, you just had the chutzpah, the gall. You know, the drive to actually do stuff in the world and how that changed how people looked at you over time for people who are listening to this saying, well, maybe I just need to get somebody to give me permission or maybe I need somebody to give me money to do something. Explain to them this different mindset that you obviously figured out very early in your life. Absolutely. I would say one of the words that defines me is I just have the audacity sometimes. Like I had no right to do what I did. I was just like, no, I agree. <laughs> no one's yeah. telling me no. So I'm just going to do it and see what happens. Yeah. And that was such a big part of, uh, of my journey so far. Where did that come from? Is that like some of your childhood? Is your dad or mom a rebel? Did you have a friend in high school who just did whatever they wanted? And you were like, that seems like a good plan. I was like the Where most did this rebel straight, spirit come from? <laughs> I was the most straight-laced kid. Oh. I... Might say that it comes from my love of books. I've read at least a thousand books. 
Oh, wow. Um, used to come home from the library with like 20 of them. And so I feel like I've lived a thousand lifetimes through what I've learned there. And there was a couple of books that were really instrumental in my framework of how I think about the world. So one is Mastery by Robert Greene. In that book, he talks about these phases of your life where you go through kind of like the noob phase, the creative active phase, and then the mastery phase. That made me have a lot more patience with what I was doing and appreciate that I'm going to stuck at a lot of things when I get started. Mm. But if I just take the first step and continue, you talk about this a lot with content of just you know, consistently doing it over and over again. Um, And just talking to people, I would cold email artists. So I wanted to manage rappers originally, but Hmm. financially venture made a lot more sense. Yeah. yeah. I think it's very similar though, uh, because you're working with people with large creative visions and building businesses and strategizing around media and messaging strategies. So it is relatively similar. But through my conversations with other people, the ones that were in positions that I, A, admired and B, really enjoyed what they did, all had this common thread of asking for what they wanted, even if other people thought it was, you know, kind of shameless of them to do that. You'd be surprised. The worst thing someone can say is no. And there's often a a lot of times people surprise you. This is a reoccurring theme of this season because um, Mac from Rare Breed, if uh, if you listen to the first episode, uh, anybody did. out there, you did. Okay. He just was talking about how many meetings he did and he did like a thousand meetings and he just kept yep. asking people, hey, support me. Hey, support me. Hey, support me. And if you get comfortable with getting a lot of no's, you need but one yes to yeah. get the ball rolling. And once you get one LP... And you're like, yeah, you know, I'm talking to these 30 people and talking to those people could have mean they said no, by the way, mm-hmm. it's not intellectually incorrect to say I'm talking to these people, <laughs> even though they're not investors. And you uh, landed one or two, all of a sudden, now people are going to take the meeting, right? And, and you kind of build on previous success. What are the books? I'm fascinated by this thousand book idea. Yeah. Are there other books or autobiographies or other genres that kind of mind virused you into thinking, well, screw it. I'm just going to go my own path. This is something I've been thinking about a lot. I feel when I was younger, I felt a lot like a bald Play-Doh and I would just like pick up anything in my path and I'd be like, ooh, like, let's try this. Let's try this. And as I've gotten older, I'm like, read the book, critically think about whether or not you want to apply it. You don't have time to apply everything. I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. Oh, yeah. I do the same thing. I pull up my, like, what books are you reading? What do you like? I like, I pull up my Audible and I start scrolling through the library. I'm like, yeah, this one's good. This one's good. I, I got a lot out of biographies. Uh, yeah. I really are... enjoyed fiction, honestly. Yeah. I felt a lot of business books kind of said the same thing over and over again. Yes. And a yes. lot of them weren't written by writers. They were written by non-classically trained writers. Mm. So I really so enjoyed- So bad communication and repetitive ideas. <laughs> I, I just, I, I love books that left me with a sense of longing about some existential question instead of- the same answer to the same question around how do I get successful? A lot of people give a prescription for success that looks strangely exactly like how they did it. <laughs> um, and so uh, that I, is like at the core of, you know, a great autobiography is like, here's how I did it. Yeah, I don't know if that yeah. applies to you or not. And almost universally, some portion of it is correct. And then by definition, if they've already used that path, it kind of gets burned. It's like a marketing yep. technique or something like, 
I got successful this way. It's like, yeah, and everybody knows that and everybody has it in their skill set and every opportunity to use that little strategy or tactic is done. Yeah. One of my favorite things to read was actually my journal. So I've kept a journal pretty much every year since I was 10. I never knew I wanted to be a venture capitalist, but I sure knew that I wanted to be a writer. So I'd always journal in high school. It was much more about like my feelings and boys. But as I got older, it was like all about this business stuff that I was learning. And it's fun to go back and look at what I was writing in my kind of junior year of college. Um, and I would always make vision boards. So that was like a big part of what I was doing. I think there is something to this. Like if you can visualize it and you can see yourself doing it, it kind of pulls you towards that goal, right? Like, yeah, I see myself as a venture capitalist or I see myself managing rap acts. You can kind of start to fill in the blanks and the connective tissue as to what would that take? And you figure that out very quickly on Twitter with all these contacts. Yeah, this was, if you can see that, it says Forbes 30 under 30. And I had that on my wall for like Mm. 2017 till this year. And this year it was, yeah, I was named uh, on the venture capitalist. And for me, the breakdown of a goal looked like I see a goal, I write it down, And then I talk to people who have accomplished that goal and see what steps that they took towards getting it. And what I saw at the core of it was just treating people like they're human Mm. and not assuming that there was some kind of hierarchy that meant that you couldn't talk to anyone. So I would just send random cold emails. For example, I sent one to Beth Comstock of GE. She wrote a really great book about entrepreneurship. And I wrote to her when I was at Northrop and said, hey... This has a lot of effect on how I'm thinking about being an entrepreneur within an organization. And she wrote back. She was like, thanks so much for the kind remark. Really appreciate it. And you'd be surprised how far a well-written cold email goes. Uh, I would not be, but I think most people would be. My entire career is based upon very sniper shot short emails. Yeah. Uh, And you would be amazed. uh, You are correct. How quickly... Uh, somebody will get back to you if you write something about them mm-hmm. that is tight um, and is not asking them for anything, but just, hey, I read your book. I really enjoyed it. I get these emails every day about my book. If they write something nice, I always write back, thanks, pal. Appreciate it. Go write yeah. a review, whatever. It's, it's You're kind of showing interest in other people and you have unlocked one of the key points of business, which is it is personal. It is about personalities and people are just humans. So. You don't have to act weird just because somebody's successful. You can just say, how's it going? And what are you up to? And I really appreciated this thing you did in the world. And they will appreciate you being normal. I can tell you that. People people act very strange. Definitely underestimate the value of just saying your appreciation for something that someone has worked on. A lot of times, many people I've met that are successful in business, their success is more the sawdust of their process and they're really at the core motivated by impact. And so if you make a comment about the impact that you've had on their life, that can often mean more to them than them closing a massive deal. Or the impact they've had on your life, right? Yes, yes, on the impact they've had on your life. That can mean more to them than anything else that's happened that day. Absolutely. If you've already made your money, you've become famous or you've hit whatever check boxes you had on your list, when somebody stops me in the street and says, hey, J. Cal, I love this episode, or I've been listening to your podcast since high school, or in your case, middle school, whatever, <laughs> you know, you've ran into the pod. Uh, yes. You know, 
it's like really for me, I mean, my, my bucket gets full. My heart is filled with joy. And they're like, oh, I love this episode. I saw that. It changed my life. I'm like, oh my God, it makes everything worthwhile going to work today and the next day. Uh, it's so incredible. I was going to say about the 30 under 30. You yeah. got it. I did. Did it change how you feel or was it just like, okay. Um, I have kind of a funny story about it. So due to COVID, there was mm. supply chain issues with the magazines and my mm. mom I think it had the biggest impact on my mom, which I'm the happiest about. <laughs> mm. And she went to every Barnes Nobles and Best Buy in town and uh -huh. like bought them out. Uh, and that was really cool. It was a testament to the decision that I had made a year ago to stay in San Diego. That was like a big part of having some level of success while staying true to my roots and putting my family first. Aside from that, we've had some interesting inbound outreach or yeah, inbound from both founders and investors. We have closed for fund one. So it's, it's been great on like the founder side and then continuing to build relationships on the investor side. And then I have really enjoyed people reaching out and just saying how my story has inspired them to get into venture. I was sent a meeting. I wanted to meet with someone at Delphi Digital because I think they're a really incredible firm in the crypto world. Ended up booking a meeting and this guy hops on the meeting and he's like, hey, I literally have this job because of a piece that you wrote about venture a year and a half ago. And so it was a nice reminder to some people to you know reach out and, and say what an impact that my work had had on them, which was awesome. It. Uh, I had a similar kind of experience. Uh, the first time I was in the New York Times, I uh, couldn't sleep because I was so <laughs> excited to see myself on the cover of the business section. I think Amy Harmon wrote the story. And uh, I basically was walking around Manhattan at four in the morning, just walking by each bodega, you know, each corner <laughs> deli, and looking to see if they had the New York Times. And sure enough, somewhere around 4.35 in the morning, the New York Times truck comes by. They literally throw the bundle of New York Times to the guy and uh, I immediately start unbutting the guy's like what are you doing like those are our New York Times I was like I, I need a copy he's like <laughs> wait a second he goes out he gets his thing he opens it up I said I'm in it he goes really I said yeah and I open it up and I read it with the guy he's like congratulations I was like can I have five of them he's like yeah and then he just charged me for one he's like I take it kid it's oh, a good I love congratulations that. that's awesome um, but then once you get one of them uh at some point I just thought I remember Bob Dylan just was like don't look back and like just move forward and whatever they define you as, the press is a review mirror. And so then I just, in my office, when I was getting so much press in the 90s in New York, I had a box in the corner. And I would take the press clips, my assistant would bring them in or somebody would bring them, hey, you're in the paper, hey, you're in Forbes, hey, you're in Fortune, hey, you're in this. And I'd take it, I'd look at it, I'd throw it in the box, <laughs> and then the box would fill up, and I, my assistant would tape it and put it in my storage unit. And they put another box there. And we just fill the boxes, and I still have the boxes That's that awesome. I've never opened in my storage unit and uh, once in a while uh you know they get moved from one location to another and i'll peek in a box and see the faded pages of when i first became famous in the 90s and then everybody <laughs> forgot about me for a while well listen congratulations <laughs> on this how uh how do you uh define success for yourself now that you've raised this five million dollar fund and how has the life changed now that you got this under your belt like what is your day-to-day -day life like now that you got the fund up and running i think the biggest switch honestly the the Forbes under 30 
had a lot of impact on how I viewed what success means to me. For a while, that had been a big pillar of what success meant to me. And after- Was the outside recognition. Was the outside recognition. And after I received the Forbes Under 30 Award, I was working with my exec coach to try and reframe what success meant to me. And we were going through this exercise and um, I was talking about how I felt a bit insecure because I felt like a lot of other folks on that list had done a lot more than me. Mm. And she was like, at the end of the day, if you're comparing dollars to dollars, you're not going to be happy because that's not what you're motivated by. You're motivated by impact. And so you have to reframe it to focus on the process and not the outcome. So what I think about a lot is input metrics versus output metrics. So for example, it's how many founders that we meet with every week, how many other fund managers I'm talking to. So on a daily basis, I will often have three to four founder meetings, a couple of meetings with other fund managers. We, a couple like LP meetings, this has shifted since fundraising ended. I used to be doing six-ish LP meetings. <laughs> I was listening to Max's episode and I think we had had around 1,700 meetings last week and, or not last week, but last year during the fundraise. And so now- Wait, you had 1,700 to talk about Mac, the VC? We, we had 1,700 1,700 well. meetings. Wow. Yeah. To get like 150 or so LPs. Mm -hmm. I felt pretty yeah. good about that conversion for rate. For a first fund. Yeah. yeah. And then oh, yeah. what will happen in the next one now is you don't have room for anybody because once you hit that 10 million limit- you're going to be, I mean, yeah. with the exception of QPs, you're just going to fill up and that'll yeah. be a great experience. But I like what you said about inputs and outputs. Uh, obviously that, you know, the, um, the really good, uh, it's not actually well-written, it's kind of dry, but the uh, Amazon book, I've got the name of it right now. They talk about inputs and outputs and the output, you don't, you know, how much press you get is kind of out of your control. I mean, on the yeah. margins, you might be able to hire PR, PR people, but working backwards is the name of the book. And the input is your hard work. And your hard exactly. work will be based upon how many founders you meet. Because if you meet a lot of founders, the chances of meeting an exceptional breakout one go up. And then exactly. how hard do you work for those founders? And your, um, your reframing of success is incredibly accurate and will serve you well because there's always going to be somebody who is not as hardworking, perhaps not as smart, who will hit three unicorns out of complete luck. Which, by the way, is what they said about me. <laughs> like, literally, <laughs> there were venture capitalists who were like, that guy hit three unicorns <laughs> in his first seven. Screw him. I was the person they were upset at. Because, like, uh -huh. how could that guy get so lucky and have no idea what venture capital is when I was a scout? And I think, you know, now that could happen to me, you know? And it's, it is a fool's errand to look to a Forbes writer or to the scoreboard you know, uh, of the randomness in our industry for validation. The validation yeah. comes from, did the founder say, hey, listen, I really appreciate you calling me on a Sunday when things are hard. That's what matters. And yeah. you're so right to focus on the process. So that, that was a really helpful reframing. And then focusing a lot more on content. When we were pretty heads down with the fundraising, I found it a bit hard to prioritize content. And we didn't raise through 506C, which effectively meant that I had to keep a big fat secret for nine months mm. about raising so that I wouldn't anger the SEC. Uh, yeah, you did 506B, probably, uh, yes. which might have been a mistake watching how great Mac did. <laughs> you might have found 10 more investors and it'd been a $10 million fund. Yeah. I'm looking at this 506C versus 506B and I'm like, I think I'm going to do the 506C just so people who are interested in understanding what I do 
can have yeah. a meeting with me or my team, right? And yeah, like, absolutely. I just want more people to get educated. And if I could have people on a call, even if it was a group call, I could do like a webinar with a thousand people or a hundred potential LPs. Uh, I could just say like, hey, here's how I think about the world. And if you want to participate, sorry, there's no room. <laughs> but if you're a qualified purchaser, I guess there is because you could have 2000 of those. Yeah, I've, I'm really looking forward to being more transparent with the process and, yeah. and going through it. I was journaling pretty extensively during the first mm. fundraise, though. So there will be sort of a reflection on that coming soon. Do you ever read any good books on I'm a writer too. Do you ever read any good books on writing? Um, yes, actually on writing well is one of my favorites. Uh -huh. And then any books by Joan Didion are really how I base my yes. writing style off of. I'm, oh, really? Yeah. I love her writing style. I, I actually really funny. I haven't talked to my high school English teacher in eight years and she randomly reached out yesterday and texted me and said, Hey, would love to catch up. And in her class, that's where I became a good writer because we had to write a two-page essay every day for a year and just takes yeah. practice. Yeah, she was um, really a keen observer, I think, uh, when you think of Joan Didion's writing. Like, just very... She had a very sharp eye and a good sense of humor, which I really appreciate. Yeah, that was another thing. She didn't like take herself or anything too, too seriously. seriously. And she really... Uh, she just knew how to like study what was actually happening in the moment, which of course, New Yorker writers and everybody started cribbing. So anytime they would do a profile, it'd be like, oh, <laughs> this person walked in and their stride was X and the room turned around. It's just like very descriptive, like taking yes. you to that moment. All the magazine writers aped that in the 90s, 80s and 90s, um, including Brett Easton Ellis. And, you know, a lot of folks just were Didion fans like crazy. And they just built and built and built on that. Uh, yeah. And then the you other... missed magazine writing. Magazine writing was such a weird, kind awesome of. time. I mean, um, I was still like growing up during that period. So I was born in 98. Okay. So well, you were like, eight years old. The 90s my, like, is when it peaked. <laughs> I had my Highlights Magazine rejection for submitting a piece. Oh, you do? I loved Highlights yep. Magazine. Goofus and Gallant. All yeah. Just great stuff in that Highlights great Magazine. Stuff. I used to love getting Highlights <laughs> Magazine. Uh, I'll give you a couple of recommendations. Born um, Standing Up. Uh, I don't know if you've got a chance to read that by no. Steve Martin, and he's a writer. Incredible. Just his story of, you know, how he built his craft, um, you know, in a number of different, because, you know, he's got a couple of different skills. Stephen King on writing. Oh, yeah. In, have you read it or have you just heard of it? I've heard of it. It's been you, recommended many times, so it's been I mean, high I just, up on there. I'm writing my next book, and I read his book for the second time this summer. And it's like mind-blowing, like even the second time. He, he, he has this theory, uh, and it's worth sharing with the audience here, because you're going to love this theory. But he's like, I believe that writing, and he, like, he reads the book in his Stephen King voice. He's like, I believe writing <laughs> is telekinesis, and it's time travel. Because I could say to you right now, I'm writing this book on a desk looking out in Massachusetts on the countryside, and I have a red, you know, uh, velvet... Uh, tablecloth and there's a bird statue in the corner and a cup of coffee but it's stained and in your mind i am telepathy telepathically putting these images into your mind that you're hearing but Whoa. it's not the same time period and i don't know when you're reading this book but i just am impacting and firing off these things in your brain and bringing you to this moment that i'm having and when he said that 
my brain melted. And I was like, oh my God, that <laughs> is what writing is. You could, and I just said it, and now all these people are having that fire up in their mind. You're like, oh my God, you could literally paint the world that you're experiencing right now. And hundreds or thousands of years later, people would have it and they would be there in their minds as well. Yeah, I feel like that's the power of descriptive writing and why I've always liked fiction so much is I feel like that's been absent for the most part from a lot of, not all nonfiction books, but a lot of business books. Is that yeah, sense they don't of tell writing? Yeah. I, I, I have kept been in reading my book, more Every two pages, I kept saying, what? every like two or three pages, my, my partner Brian and I would talk about it. And he was my partner writing the book. And he really like edited it for me and read it. And we're like, we got to drop an anecdote in here. It's been <laughs> six pages since an anecdote. Let's come up with a crazy story that you've experienced and, and drop it in. Oh, the final one, Bird by Bird and Lamont. Ooh, another okay. great. I saw a quote from that recently. I think Tim Ferriss, my pal Tim Ferriss, just had yes, her it's on in his the pod, shed. but I didn't listen oh, to yeah. it. But I know Tim was also, I, I, Tim might have been the guy who accepted it in my mind, is the Anne Lamont book. And she just- Yeah. He talked about in The 4-Hour Chef. I'm going through it right now. I just got my like cast iron pans. I'm ready to be Oh, very chef. good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Listen, congratulations. Uh, you're a force of nature. Uh, and thank you for sharing how you did it so that other people- you just drop down a thousand ladders. There's all kinds of people listening to this now going, huh, maybe I should do that too. So everybody take a moment, pause the podcast, go to Amazon. Or if you're not driving, you can do this at the same time possibly. And uh, I want you to type in seed to harvest, a simple explanation of venture capital. And I want you to order three copies and give it to your nieces and nephews and then put one on your shelf. Go buy a couple of copies of the book and let's get more investors and capital allocators out there because that's what the world needs. More people placing bets and solving problems. And if you uh, are in the podcast player anyway, listening to this, you could search for Seed to Harvest and subscribe to Paige's podcast as well. You could follow Paige. She's P-A-I-G-E-F-I-N-N-N. That's three N's. Nice. Uh, She's a general partner at Behind Genius Ventures and you can visit them at BehindGeniusVentures.com. Well done, Paige. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. Really appreciate it. I wish you uh, tremendous success in your career. And uh, it's nice to see this next generation crushing it. So (laughs) we'll see you all next time on Angel. Hey guys, Rachel reporting here. On February 14th and 15th, we'll be hosting Founder University Intensive. This is a two-day program for founders. Now, this course is only open to women founders. We'll be hosting a course open to everyone on May 9th and 10th. You can apply for both at founder.university. And applications for the longer 12-week Founder University program are due on February 14th, and you can also apply for those at founder.university. Follow Jason and Molly on Twitter at Jason and at Molly Wood. If you're not a boomer and prefer TikTok, search for This Week in Startups to find the fan account at this underscore week underscore in underscore startups. And our official account at TWI Startups. But honestly, the fan account is way better than ours. And if you're still not tired of hearing from Jason six days a week, you can hear him read his book Angel at angelthebook.com slash audible.